All right, so Psalm 40, if you're, um, if you're not familiar yet, we're, we're in a series called the Summer Psalms. Um, we're doing this uh, mainly because it's a, it's a great time of year just to sort of focus in on one psalm every week. And, and that way, if there's a week that you, you can't be here or you're, you know, whatever, um, you're not going to be missing anything really, really crucial as we develop through here. It's just kind of every week stands on its own, basically. Um, so that's where we're at. Um, and this week we've, we've pulled out uh, Psalm 40. And just a really amazing psalm. And, and I'm really excited to, to dig into it with you. So um, let's, let me kind of set this up for us. Um, this psalm has um, at least, and I'm going to just have five uh, implications five implications or responses to the gospel uh, in this psalm. But the, the gospel itself is clearly seen in the psalm, and it's sort of sandwiched in between these implications and these responses. And so I want to set it up just because we, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you, you know we, we've been trying to make this very clear connection to Jesus, right? We're, we're trying to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It's the whole reason that we have it. Um, but there are some really clear pointers and markers to Jesus, and this one is, is really no exception. Um, so to, to see this, we've got to go uh, to first to verse 6 through 8 of Psalm 40. And, and I promise we're going to look at all of it, but Psalm 6 through 8 in particular is quoted directly in the book of Hebrews. And so, like I said, maybe four weeks ago or something, we, we looked at a psalm that was a, had direct quotations in the book of Acts and that Peter, as he used those words in the book of Acts, um, connected them directly to Christ. And, and so it's not hard to make that connection when they're so explicitly seen and this is another one of those psalms that it's directly quoted and it's directly uh, tied back to Jesus. And, and though I think that understanding this at the beginning of all, all of this uh, is going to help us interpret the, the totality of the psalm. It's going to help us get the point of it when we understand how the New Testament interprets these verses. And, you know, so the, the Bible... Uh, quotes itself a lot. In the New Testament, it quotes a lot of Old Testament. Most of the quotations, the majority of them, are from the book of Psalms. And, uh, and so we see quite often how the, the writers of the New Testament use the Psalms to show us Jesus. So let me read these, these verses here in Psalm 40. Then we're going to flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 and then uh, look at how this is applied because I think understanding how to rightly apply these verses opens up our whole new world for us to understand the psalm in its proper context. So look at verse 6. It says, In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come to, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law is within my heart. 
All right, so there's, there's the psalm that is quoted in Hebrews. So flip over to Hebrews 10 just for a few minutes here. We're going to unpack this. Um, Hebrews 10, we're going to start in verse 1 there, and then because uh, that will lead up into the context of, of how he quotes the psalm. Um, all right, Hebrews 10.1 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have not, they would, have, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, so, so what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. That's why it's the letter to the Hebrews. Um, these, are, these are Jewish people who have become followers of Jesus. And the purpose of the book of Hebrews uh, in its original context is to show the people who are coming to Christ out of Judaism and showing them how the law is insufficient to save them, that they need something else. And this, this particular passage makes this point abundantly clear. He says, the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The, in other words, the law is just like the, the primer to kind of get us thinking about these things that Jesus will ultimately do, but it's not the, the main thing. The law is not the, the thing that we're shooting for. We're not aiming for the law. The law just points us to Jesus, and so I, I think about it this way. This is not a great analogy or a perfect analogy, but, it, but I think about it this way, that the, the law is kind of like the appetizer salad. All right, you guys know where I'm going with this. It's technically food, technically, but it's not why you're at the restaurant, right? Like you don't, no one goes to the restaurant and goes, you know what, I, I just want a side salad. Now, I've been with people who have ordered side salads, and I, I judge them in my heart, uh, but... <laughs> You know, most people do not go to a restaurant and, and order just a salad, a side salad. Like that's, that's, that's there to, you know, there was some comedian who said that that's the, it's the promissory note that you get that food's coming. Is when you get the, when you get the salad, it's like, oh, food's on its way. It's almost here, right? So that's, that's what the law was. It wasn't the point. It wasn't the main course. It wasn't what you were there for. You were there for Jesus, but the law had its purpose. It had the purpose of preparing people for what was to come. And so he makes this point that the law is this shadow. It's, it's, if you think about a shadow itself, that analogy he uses, um, it's like the, you, you stand in front of a light and behind you it casts a shadow, right? That shadow sort of looks like you, kind of, it's kind of a warped and twisted version of you, but it's, it sort of resembles a person's silhouette, a shape. Um, but it's not you. The shadow is not you, right? That's his point. And so it's like, it's not the true form. It, and he then goes even further to say, it can never, never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. 
So the sacrificial system of Leviticus and all the Old Testament um, cannot actually make you perfect. It can't save you from your sins. Um, it, it just can't do it. Otherwise, he says in verse 2, they would have ceased to be offered. They wouldn't continue. You wouldn't have to keep doing it if it worked. But because it didn't work, these, these sacrifices became a reminder every single year of sin and their need for forgiveness. And then he just doubles down even further and says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. It's impossible. Like, so again, we, we got to read these and go, then why did God make them do that way back then? It's all because it's preparing people for Jesus. That was the whole thing. Like, so when you get into your you know, yearly Bible reading plan, and somewhere around February, you start getting into Leviticus. And that's usually when everyone quits. As soon as you hit Leviticus, you're done, right? Like every year, I'm going to read the Bible. Oh, I hit Leviticus again. I'm, I'm out. But when you read Leviticus and those kind of books, you, can, you need to read them through. This is what Jesus came to save us from. This is why all of this horrible stuff that is happening in Leviticus, it's meant to show us how bad sin is and how much we really need a Savior. That's what it's there for. And, and so we read that through the lens of Christ. So look at verse 5. This is where we start getting into the, the psalm that we just read. It said, consequently, so because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, when Jesus came into the world, he said, he said, and then he's going to quote Psalm 40. So this is interesting because David wrote Psalm 40, but the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus actually is saying this. These are Jesus' words. And so he, Jesus is speaking through the, 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 the writing of King David. That's the point. But these are Jesus' words, and here's what he said. It's going to sound very similar to what we just read. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, it is a slightly different translation, um, and there's some reasons for that. One, uh, the writer of Hebrews is probably using the, this translation from Hebrew to Greek, called the Septuagint. Uh, so the Septuagint was like the first Old Testament translation. It was in, put into Greek. So of course, when you've got a translation of the original, you got that. You're going to have some you know, things that don't exactly perfectly translate. And then you've got from the Greek translation of the Septuagint, you then have English translation. So again, it's, it's going to sound a little different, but that's essentially, it's making the same point. He's quoting the psalm. We can hear certainly how close it is to the version that we have in our Bibles. And, and so here's what he says this he, in verse 8. When Jesus said above, you have neither the desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, the, the need for burnt offerings, in order to establish the second, 
doing the will of God. That's what he's talking about. And by that, we have become sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, so again, remember, Hebrews is written to an Old Testament or to a rather a Jewish audience that is still wondering, okay, here's Jesus, he saves us, but do we still have to offer sacrifices at the temple? Do we still follow the law? These are the questions that are being answered, and the answer is no. We, we don't continually offer these sacrifices because Jesus was, once and for all, the sacrifice for our sins. And, and he's, so he's doing really what God has called him to do. He's done away with, because he's fulfilled, the sacrificial offering and in, in his own death on the cross. And by doing so, he has fulfilled God's word in saying that he's come to do God's purpose, God's will. So, so you have this psalm used in the context of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? He, he's using this psalm to prove that even in the Old Testament, God was, was preparing people for the ultimate fulfillment of these things in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's actually saying these words. He is living these words because God does not desire offerings and sacrifices and burnt offerings. At the end of the day, what God desires is for people to do his will, right? And at the end of the day, Jesus fulfills that because we can't do the will of God perfectly, but Jesus did, and he did that through the sacrificial offerings uh, of dying on the cross. All right, so I know that's a lot. That's a lot to kind of take in. So let's just get our heads clear let me just simplify this, bring it down to one sentence before we get back into Psalm 40 um, and look at the rest of this. Here's, here's what I think we need to see. Jesus' once and for all sacrifice for sin is accomplished perfectly and finally. But because of that, we can now read Psalm 40 through that Lens. We can read it through the fact that Jesus has accomplished everything for us. And so what we read from here on out becomes a response to that, becomes a uh, um, sort of a, um, an implication of that. And, and so we can read these things through that lens. I think if we don't read it through the lens of the finished work of Christ, uh, again, like, like tends to happen when you read the Old Testament, what will end up coming into our mind is, oh, well, okay, the Bible says I have to do X, Y, Z, so I better do X, Y, Z. In reality, what we are supposed to be reading the Old Testament through is Jesus did X, Y, Z, and he did it perfectly. He did it for us. And so by faith, we live in him. We're united to him. We, we obey him, but because he's already obeyed perfectly what we could never do, all right? So uh, that's kind of where we're at. And that might be as clear as mud, but I'm, I'm trying my best here. So let's get into Psalm 40 again. Turn back there. We're not going to be back in Hebrews. I just wanted to set up the context. And what we're going to do for the rest of our time is walk through what are the implications or responses to the gospel that Christ fulfills for us in this text. And I've got five. 
Uh, so we'll, ro we'll roll through them pretty quickly. But let's look at the, verse, the first couple verses. Here's what it says. <clears throat> I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The first thing that we see as we read this psalm through the finished work of Christ is that what God gives us through Jesus is a rescue. That he rescues us from destruction, from death, from sin, from all of its effects. David is writing this, of course, in the time before Christ, but God is the writer of these words. Right? We, we have to believe that. We believe that the scriptures were written by God through people, but they're God's words. And so this is what God, I think, means for us to see, is that because Jesus is going to perfectly fulfill the, the need for sacrificial offerings and perfectly fulfill the will of God, we can read these first two verses and go, here's what it means. It means that God is offering us through Jesus the rescue of our, of our hearts from sin and destruction. Look at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. God is a God who is not distant. He's not aloof. He's not uninterested in you. Notice the language here. There's, it says that God inclined to me. He leaned in. He leaned in and he heard me. God hears us. He responds to us. He is, is not distant from us. He's near and he wants to be, um, wants to be sought and he's pursuing us. It says then he, that he drew me up from what? From the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He, he's literally coming to rescue us out of the junk and the garbage and the destruction that we have found ourselves in. He's doing this not because we're the ones that are somehow rescuing ourselves, but because Jesus came into the world to rescue his people, to once and for all forgive them of their sins so that they could be redeemed and pulled to safety. And so that's what you see, this, this drawing up from the pit. I mean, the, the picture is pretty, pretty clear in our minds, right? Picture the person in a deep pit. They can't dig themselves out. They can't climb themselves up. They're stuck where they are unless someone comes down to get them and reach for them and pull them up. That's what our God has done for us. It's what he's accomplished. And not only that, but he pull, pulls us up and he sets our feet upon a rock making our steps secure. He doesn't pull us up and put us down into danger again. He pulls us up and sets our feet in secure, safe places in himself, in himself, ultimately, that he's the rock on which we stand, that he's the rock that we are set upon. So implication number one is that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and through his resurrection, we are rescued from our sin. That leads us to number two. 
which is a response. Verse 3, it says, He, God, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The The second implication or response here that we see in this passage, is, is praise. A desire to praise God, to, to make uh, our hearts sing and be glad in Him. Right now, this is obviously the, a natural response of what we've just seen God do. Pulling us out of the pit of destruction, uh, out of this miry bog, what's the response that somebody who has witnessed that, experienced that, is going to have? It's going to be gratitude. It's going to be praise. It's going to be singing and rejoicing, right? You're, this, this is a response to the gospel, that if Jesus Christ has come into the world, lived perfectly, died in our place, has um, ultimately been raised from the dead, then what our hearts should do is sing and rejoice and celebrate, right? This is why we come to church and they're singing at church. Now, if you're not a church person or if you haven't been to church your whole life, this might, it might be kind of weird to come to a place and sing songs together, right? It's not something that we typically do culturally. Uh, I mean, unless you're at like a sporting event and you're kind of all rallied up against somebody else, uh, but that's, those tend to be more songs of just mocking the other team than they are of praising the team you have, right? With, with the Christian life, it is, we are praising the God who rescued us. We're singing in, in joy to him. And that is uh, really a beautiful thing. And that's why we sing at church. That's what, that's what this is all about. Now, let's, this leads very naturally into the third thing here, which is in verses four and five. It says, Blessed is the man or the person who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim... And tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Now, what I want to just highlight here is this, this does lead really naturally from the, the singing of a song in our hearts that we saw in verse 3. But what I want to highlight here or just point out here is verse 4. The first word is blessed or blessed. Now, that's a word that we don't use a whole lot uh, in, in English here. But what it means is joyful. What it means is happy. It's, it's to find this, this emotional joy well up from us. And, and this is what the psalmist says. He says, happy, joyful is the man who, who makes the Lord his trust. If the Lord is the one that you're putting your trust in, then the response of your heart will inevitably be joy. It'll be this uh, overwhelming, uh, overwhelming Um, joy in Christ, this happiness in Jesus that cannot come from anyone else or anywhere else. And so these are obviously very closely linked. I mean, the whole psalm is very closely linked. It's not a disjointed, like, cut to pieces thing. It's a a flowing uh, work of poetry. 
that we're reading here. But it, but you got to see the re- the 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 way that this is working it's the rescue of god leads to praising him through song it leads to having a a demeanor of joy in our hearts towards him and and that are the first the first three implications of this of this gospel that jesus has accomplished for us then you get into verse six through eight which we've read already um and this is where that's kind of sandwiched in the middle of this psalm is this amazing reminder that God does not really desire the sacrifices and the offerings. That's not what God really wanted. That wasn't his his aim. The aim uh, of all of it, like I mentioned at the front end of this thing, is to rescue people ultimately from their sin. And the sacrificial system was just a a means of building up to, to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And so here, right in the middle of this psalm, you have this reminder of the gospel that the, the, the writer of Hebrews hones in on. Now, let, so let's keep going here since we did take some time on that already. Um, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Um, here's what it says. It says, I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Here's the implication that we see from the gospel. When Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, it it, it creates a rescue from sin and from death and destruction, produces praise and joy that ultimately results in the sharing of this good news with others. We, we need to see that, that David's point here is that if God has done all of this for us, why in the world would we keep it to ourselves? If God has rescued us, if God has produced joy in us, if God has done all of this through Jesus, why in the world would we stay silent? If people need to be rescued, why aren't we telling them they need to be rescued and how they can be rescued through Jesus? Again, again it's, not, it's not about like trying to make this person feel bad about themselves. It's about showing them the, the ultimate joy they can find in Christ that they're not finding in all of their other endeavors. And so this is, this is the point he's making in these couple of verses. He says, I've told the glad news. The, that, the word gospel, that word that we use for the gospel, actually means glad news, good news, happy news. And it's happy news because it's the news of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners and that he's made a way for us. So David's writing this through, from his point of view. It's, I, I'm, I'm just going to tell the whole congregation. I'm going to tell the whole people of Israel about this. And, and so he, he says, I'm not restraining my lips. I'm not holding back what, what I need to say about the Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. Notice that. That's interesting. He's, what he's saying is, is that I'm not going to just take your, your, your salvation and just tuck it away inside and leave it alone. 
But, I, but instead he says, I've spoken of your faithfulness. I've spoken of your salvation. The, the, I, I think this is really profound, just as I'm thinking about this. That the story of salvation is, at the end of the day, a story of God's faithfulness. That God would be patiently, faithfully waiting for, for prodigals and, and sinners to come to him. But he's not just passively waiting. He's intentionally waiting and he's actually doing much of the pursuing without us ever being aware of it. In, in setting the stage and preparing the soil, in doing all the things that ultimately lead to us responding to his great good news. This is, um, this is what David is saying. He's saying, I'm speaking of your faithfulness and your salvation. I think these things are totally linked. And then he, he even repeats it again. Uh, he says, I have not concealed your steadfast love. Steadfast love means unchanging, unshaking love. God's love for us does not change. It does not falter. It, does not, it doesn't go with the tides. It is steadfast. It's secure. And then it says, and your faithfulness. David repeats this idea of the faithfulness of God uh, several times in this. He's going to continue to repeat this theme because it is, that is our hope that God is faithful, that God is steadfast in his love for us. That God, so, so think about this. Think about the person in your life who does not know the Lord, does not have a relationship with Jesus, does not want one right now. I'm assuming most of us have people in our life in that, in that boat. And, and here's the thing. We can get really discouraged and, and sad and even angry at the Lord because of their hardness of heart. But what we ought to be focusing on is not their hardness of heart because God can overturn that in an instant. What we should be focusing on is the faithfulness of God to preserve this person and, and, and to ultimately lead them to him. We need to keep that in front of us, that God is faithful. He was faithful with you in all of your wanderings and all of your journey. He's, and he's faithful with them, though you may not see it. And, and uh, you know, obviously we know that not every person in the world responds to Jesus. There are people who will uh, reject him to the end. And, and that's heartbreaking, and I get that. But, but our, our deal here, our response is not to focus on that, but to faithfully pray to the Lord that he would show himself steadfast and faithful in their life. And God desires people to be saved. And so that's, that's what we need to keep in front of us. Let the Lord take care of everything else, but let's keep our eyes on his faithfulness. Um, so, that's, so sharing the good news, sharing the glad news of salvation is, is the implication we just looked at. There's one more, and it is kind of a longer chunk here. It's the rest of the psalm. Um, and there's definitely some, you know, interwoven themes throughout these verses, but I want to hone in on one particular idea. So let's read them. Verse 11, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever 
preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, hurry to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let me just highlight a few things. The, the overarching point that he's making is that what flows from the gospel is a continual preservation in Jesus. That, that in and through the work of Jesus Christ, and again, David's, you know, a good hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. He didn't know Jesus by name, but he trusted God that this, would, that this person would come. He had been promised that someone would sit on his throne forever, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the thing. David's seeing this not through the lens of Jesus necessarily, but we can read it that way. We can understand that that's what he's saying. And so here we're, we're seeing this reality that Christ, because of the finished work on the cross, can preserve us and will preserve us continually through all the hardships of life. David's hardships are different than ours. David's hardships were political. They were military. They were, he was a king of a country, right? So there's differences here. And, and it was very, uh, it was a much more um, uncivilized kind of culture around him. Uh, and so what he was dealing with were his sons trying to murder him because that's how they thought they could take the throne. They, it's kind of Game of Thronesy that way, right? And, and then you have the, the enemies of Israel uh, all around trying to take over the land and all these things. And so he's just caught, caught in between all of these dangerous situations. So what he's talking about are real life, life and death, physical life and death dangers that he's praying God will save him from. We don't have to read those words and apply it directly to us. We might not walk outside and say, well, someone's going to try to kill me today. I hope that's not the case. If it is, call the police. But um, we, that's not your case, right? But what we're seeing here is that there are dangers for all of us. There are the dangers of our own sin. There's the dangers of, of temptation in, in the world. There's danger all around us that, that's trying to allure us away from Jesus. And the promise of the gospel is that Christ will continually, constantly preserve his people. He's not going to let us be destroyed. He's not going to let us be ruined. We, we will see victory one day fully and finally. Uh, that day may take a while to get to, but it will be a reality. I, I want to just highlight a couple of quick things here as we close this out. Just a couple verses that really stick out to me in this. Um, 
The first one is verse 11, where he says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Okay? Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So the first thing that I just, I read that this week and I was just like thrown to the ground, you know, it's just like, what he's, what he's saying is, is that the mercy of God is not held back. God is not withholding his mercy from us. That's what he means by, he says, you will not restrain your mercy. God's mercy for you is full and free and unlimited and totally without end. He is always offering you mercy, even on your worst days, on the days when you just stumble and fall and sin and rebel. His mercy is still for you. Look at what he says in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. And then this is the, this is the line that gets me, is the next line in verse 12. My iniquities... That's a, that's a word we looked at last week, I think, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago. That, that means our sin, right? Our, our, our evil, our rebellion against God. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. There are days where I feel that way. There's probably days where you feel that way, where we look at how bad we really are, when we're actually honest about ourselves, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes absolutely overwhelming. It's to a point where we're just like, we can't even see. And this, I think, is kind of, uh, re- it was reiterated, this point was reiterated by uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a, had a theory, and I think it's, I think it's biblical, but uh, he, you know, he can't point to a chapter and verse for it. But it's he, he said that essentially that he believed God only gradually showed us our sin over time, that he would show us a little bit more and a little bit more and, and in doses that we could handle. Because Martin Luther's point was that if God showed you everything about you that was not within God's will and desire, that it would kill you. You would just be so overcome by it, so totally devastated by it that you couldn't even live. This is kind of what David's saying. He's, he's saying that here's all of his personal iniquities have overtaken him to the point that he can't see and they outnumber even the hairs on his head. This is obviously hyperbolic language, right? It's, it's meant to sort of shock us. But, but this is in the context of the mercy of God and the faithful, steadfast love of God for us, even in that even on those days and in those moments where you can't see anything but your sin, Christ offers you his mercy. And he doesn't destroy you. He doesn't take you out. He doesn't give you what you deserve. Why? Because Jesus took everything you deserved upon himself. Every iniquity, every sin, everything that you've done that outnumber the hair of your head or the hair of someone else's head, if that's your case. Um, But every single thing you've done has been paid for by Jesus. Everyone. Everything that you will do has been paid for by Jesus. 
And so what we get is not what we deserve. What we get is an endless supply of mercy in the midst of our worst moments. What we get is mercy. See, this is why Christianity, the message of Christianity is vastly different than the message of karma. You all know what karma is, right? And we all, we're all guilty of thinking in these terms where we will say what goes around comes around or this person will get what they deserve or why am I not getting good things because I've been doing good things. And, and all of this is a misunderstanding of the gospel, of course. But it's a misunderstanding of the gospel because what the gospel fundamentally teaches is this, that we don't get what we deserve. We get the grace that we don't deserve. That Christ took what we deserved upon himself and only gives to us what we don't deserve, which is his grace and mercy. And I just, I just was taken aback by that verse and, and I think we need to, to wrestle with these things in our hearts because so often we see our failures and we, and we are so quick to say, you know, because I did that again or because I thought that again or I said that again, Christ must not want me anymore. That's not the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is that Christ faithfully and steadfastly loves all who are his and that he will offer you nothing but mercy in the midst of your iniquities and your, and your troubles. When your iniquities are so deep that you can't even see past them, Christ is there to pull you out of the pit, to set your feet on solid ground. And that's why, this, this is why every Sunday I look at this as a reset for the week. Because every week we're reminded only of our failures. And every Sunday we're reminded Jesus covers them. Jesus paid for them. Jesus loves us in the midst of it. That's why, theologically, we take communion every week here. We do it because every week we need to be reminded and confronted with the beautiful love of Jesus that covers our sins. Because if you don't get it here, where are you going to get it? Out there, it's nothing but failure and weakness and, and people pointing at us and going, see, you're, you're a hypocrite. And they're not wrong. We are. But every week we get to start our week afresh and go, Jesus, your grace is sufficient today. It's for me today. And it's for me every day. But this is the tangible time we get to remind ourselves of it. So I don't know what kind of perilous journey you may have been on this week, but you're here and Jesus is offering you safety He's offering you harbor. He's offering you a, a solid rock to stand upon. And we get to rejoice in that today. And so let me, um, let me pray for us. And then we're going to take some time to sing, to worship, to respond through giving and through communion. And we will, um, we'll do that together. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love for us. That your steadfast love is better than anything that we could ever have offered to us. We pray that our hearts will respond to it, that we'll be transformed by you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.